For this broadcast, I will present part one of a live symposium recording about traditional tattoo, which through my platform Broken Boxes, and as an accomplice, I had the privilege to co-produce in collaboration with Kua Aina Associates, which is an indigenous arts and culture nonprofit dedicated to upholding the integrity of indigenous peoples and their desire to preserve the wisdom of their ancestors through traditional and contemporary arts. The Ancestral Inc. Symposium honoring Indigenous Tattoo Traditions took place at the Santa Fe Art Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico on August 18, 2019. This symposium brought together Indigenous tattoo practitioners and cultural bearers from the Pacific and North America who are the forerunners in the revival of traditional cultural tattoo practices. This event provided space and time for an informative, engaging, and inspiring forum that celebrated the resurgence and resilience of indigenous peoples and traditional tattooing practices. Among the symposium's presenters were tattoo practitioners, including master tattoo practitioner Kione Nunez, who is native Hawaiian, Terangitu Netana, who is Maori, Marjorie Tabon, who is Inupiaq from Nome, Alaska, and Dion Katzes, co-founder of Earthline Tattoo School on the University of British Columbia's Okangyang campus, and Corey Kamehana Okal Hot Tom, who is native Hawaiian. The symposium also featured a panel of native Californian cultural bearers who have been part of the renewal and reawakening of their tattoo traditions, including Lauren Bomelin, Lena Bomelin, L. Frank Manriquez, and Sage La Pena. Following the symposium, we held an open studio which provided attendees an opportunity to interact with the practitioners and panelists and to witness traditional tattoo demonstrations. In this first section of rebroadcasting the symposium, we will hear the first two speakers of Ancestral Inc. program recorded live. The event opens with a brief introduction by us, the organizers, and then L. Frank Manriquez introduces the artist talks. On this broadcast, we hear from Dion Casas and Terangitu Netana. Please note that in between each artist speaking, we play a clip from Skindigenous, a 13-part documentary series exploring indigenous tattooing traditions around the world. And you can check that project out at www.skindigenous.tv. Before we get into the program, I want to give brief bios for L. Frank, Dion, and Terangitu, who you will hear from on this broadcast today. Please excuse any mispronunciation of tribal affiliations. L. Frank Manriquez is from Southern California and belongs to the Tongva Achishmen tribes. L. Frank is an artist, writer, tribal scholar, cartoonist, and indigenous language activist, and self-described decolonizationist. Part of her role as a decolonizationist was her decision to wear the chin tattoo of her people. L. Frank is the co-founder of Advocates for Indigenous California Language Survival. She was instrumental in creating a curriculum and training for language revival and restoration that has been used nationally and internationally among Indigenous language advocates. Dion Casas is a Nlakpamu 
or Thompson Indian from British Columbia, Canada. Since 2012, Dion has been engaged in the revival of his ancestors' tattooing practices and assists in the revival of other nations' tattooing traditions as a co-founder of the Earthline Tattoo Collective and training residency. Dion specializes in neo-tribal dot work, black work, and ornamental tattooing with a special emphasis on traditional hand tattooing techniques. These include hand poke and skin stitch tattooing methods, which arrive from his culture. Dion is regarded as one of the leaders of the revival of indigenous tattooing in Canada. Terangitu Netana is an internationally acclaimed practitioner of traditional tamoko or Maori tattoo and an artist from Aotearoa or New Zealand of the Napuhi, Nativai, and Te Arawa tribe descent. Terangitu has been practicing tamoko for over 28 years and weaves the wearer's story into its designs, leaving them with a piece of artwork on their skin that reflects their own beliefs and spirituality. He is dedicated to the message of tamoko and ensures he respects the sacred ceremony of the practice on every subject he tattoos. Terangitu has traveled extensively throughout his career sharing his culture and traditions, and working alongside tattoo masters from other indigenous cultures. Terangitu currently lives and works in the UK. So now I'm humbled to share with you the rebroadcast from the first portion of the Ancestral Inc. Symposium, honoring indigenous tattoo traditions. Aloha everyone, my name is Carolyn Kuali'i and I'm the director of Kua Aina Associates. Um, we're a small indigenous arts and cultural organization. And I'll let um, the other two introduce themselves. Um, I'd also like to invite Renee, um, who's part of SFAI, up here after we introduce ourselves. Um, so um, to, to just introduce the space. My name is Ginger Donnell. I'm the founder and producer of Broken Boxes podcast which extends beyond just sharing stories um, through audio. It's now a multi-sensory thing. This is my Hanai relative, Ian Kuali'i, who just joined us to live here um, on this land. And Carolyn, my Hanai auntie, somebody I consider a mentor. Um, so I'm honored to support this event and all these incredible, incredible relatives joining us here today. I just want to say that um, this has been two years in the making, and I want to um, do some acknowledgments before we really get busy. I want to um, acknowledge um, the Native Arts and Culture Foundation. Want to put your hand up <laughs> um, as one of our funders. Um, Honor the Earth, um, the uh, Cultural Conservancy, or yeah, Cultural Conservancy, the San Francisco Native American Cultural Center, and it's all in your book. Um, but I just needed to say that I'm. I'm grateful that they believed in what we were doing and, um, and we're here today and we have a great program of, you know what, indigenous knowledge and love that's going to come your way today. Um, so I'll have you. Thank you. I'm Jamie Blosser. I'm the executive director here at the Santa Fe Art Institute. Just want to say it's been such a distinct pleasure working with this amazing crew, Ginger and Carolyn and Ian. 
We are so thrilled to host everyone here as we are on the indigenous territories of the Tewa and Tanos people here in Santa Fe and the Santa Fe Art Institute. It's such an honor to welcome all of you here and all of the culture bearers that we have here today. It's just absolutely so exciting and wonderful. And I know that we will learn, I will learn tremendous amounts today. Thank you so much. And I wanted to say thank you to her staff. They've been really supportive. And um, anyway, I think we should get the, sh the ball rolling. So, <laughs> all right, thank you. There's so much pride in these tattoos again that people are proud to be who they are from their communities and their nations and they're wearing it on their face, they're wearing it on their hands or their arms, they're not hiding it anymore. To see it happen and to be a part of that is very exciting. Of every time that I visit a new site, I get another piece of who I am back. When I'm tattooing, I really see it as a service to others. Tattoo in Samoa is part of our life. It's part of our culture. And it's, a, it's a living culture that it was there before us. Kahit na wala nang mula man ang mga mga ninuno namin, palaan dyan sila kung ipag, ipakilala namin yung tradisyon namin na pagtatato. You draw the designs out from the individual as opposed to placing them on the individual. Learning how to tattoo is one part, but learning why we tattoo is so important. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's been hard to speak right now. It's a thing of beauty. I think in some ways that tattooing can be a form of activism. And I believe that the spirit world is watching us while we're doing this and working with us. The process of reviving my indigenous and Thakmuk tattooing practice has been a way of remembering and re-indigenizing myself. Uh, flown me here at uh, great expense to tell you that the restrooms are down the hall <laughs> to the right and once again to the left and if you prefer standing you can stand on the right if you prefer sitting you can sit on the left if you have to do both ask someone else <laughs> all right well I, I yeah I'm trying to be Hawaiian yeah I'm also trying to be the right height for this mic. All right. Okay, we're going to see other films like this. You're going to listen to people who are practitioners and who are the recipients of their practice, I guess is how you'd say it, I don't know. Um, the cultural recipients. And um, it may be about tattooing, but it's about a piece of the whole. It's about the entire planet. It's about the things living on it, including human beings. It's not just about some ink on some skin. It's about lifetimes and generations. So I hope you remember where the restrooms are and enjoy your day.
for me, the process of reviving my indigenous Bukmuk tattooing practice has been a way of remembering. I've always been taught that we are given gifts and if we don't share them, uh, they don't stay. So it's a way of healing and re-indigenizing myself. Maybe I'll leave it here. Don't get too carried away, you know? So uh, my name is Dion Kazis. I'm a Hungarian, Métis, and Intlakatmuk cultural tattoo practitioner and tattoo artist. I'm here, and I'm very thankful to be invited here. Um, and I'm going to be sharing with you uh, some stories uh, from my territory and from the interior Salish. And my, as you can see, my presentation is Indigenous Tattoo Revival in Canada, Lessons from Coyote, Black Bear, Bitterroot, Saskatoonberry, and Salmon. So I just put this here so you can see where uh, my territory is. So, right up there. so that's our traditional territory and that's where we come from. Uh, so I always like to give context of where I'm coming from, where the knowledge I'm sharing you know, uh, is in, in place in the land. So, you know, just an introductory slide. You've probably you've seen the video, already talked about kind of who I am, but uh, uh, above and beyond what I do as a cultural tattoo practitioner and tattoo artist, uh, I do a lot of painting and I also do a lot of uh, research and scholarly work in terms of writing, uh, curating exhibitions, etc. So what can t Coyote teach us about tattooing and tattoo revival? So, you know, um, I'm just going to share a story with you from uh, the Seal or Okanagan, which are also interior Salish people, uh, just, you know, uh, off to the side of us, about an hour and a half from where my territory is. And so Coyote was out, you know, as Coyote does, walking the land, hanging out, doing his thing, sees, looks up, sees eagle flying by this big cliff, you know, on those big cliffs you get a nice updraft, and so eagle was just soaring, playing, diving, moving around, coyote looks up, yep, those are my ways, yep, so he starts to walk, up the side of the cliff, up to the hill, up, 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 up. Each step, yep, those are my ways. Just watching. Those are my ways. He finally gets to the edge of the cliff, and he looks over and he goes, yeah, those are my ways. And of course, Coyote doesn't have the same wings as Eagle, so flapping those silly coyote arms, twisting that silly coyote tail, and Everywhere. Coyote was splattered everywhere. And so at that time, you know, this is the time before this time. And, uh, you know, we had helpers. We had brothers and sisters. We had members of our family who would come and put us back together when we, you know, had challenges. And we got ourselves into a sticky situation and we, uh, you know, went to pieces. And so, 
it was Fox's job. It was Fox was Coyote's brother. And so Fox heard, oh, Coyote got himself into another predicament. So, you know, took his time, got over to where uh, Coyote was, and started to pick up little pieces, a little tooth, a little bit of brain, a little bit of hair, a little bit of blood, and started to make a pile. As many pieces as he could find, he put into a little pile. And he breathed on that pile and stepped over it three times, and Coyote came back to life. And of course, Coyote was like, oh, what'd you do? I was having a good nap there. And so he, you know, went off on his way. No thanks, nothing, just... Thanks for waking me up, that's it. And so he went on his way. So I like to share that story because, you know, we're talking about tattoo revival and there's many of us with nations who don't have a lot of pieces of coyote left. So in this situation, we're looking at our tattooing tradition as coyote. And, you know, we don't have, maybe we only have one tooth or maybe we only have one piece of hair or maybe we only have a little bit of brain matter that we can put into our pile to breathe life into the coming generations. So I share this story to encourage you to, no matter how much of a pile you have as you move forward in the work of reviving your tattooing traditions or any of your cultural traditions, that what's important is the breath that you put into it and the times that you step over it, so the work that you do to bring it back, not necessarily the um, <clears throat> how many pieces you have. Oh, that was my next slide. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so gathering pieces of coyote since 2010. So this is, uh, I took a, a hike, a 30-kilometer hike with my brother up what's called the Stein River Valley, which is one of the you know, most sacred places of my people, and we tattooed this pictograph. So in 2006, you know, I went into a tattoo parlor to get work done on this sleeve, and uh, as I was there, I was looking through all the, you know, tattoo magazines, because of course, you know, in any waiting room, there are magazines strewn over any table. So I was looking through them, and I, you know, I always dramatize it really great, you know, like a light came, you know, was shining down on the table, and, you know, I, you know, parted all of the books, and there was this little pamphlet called Tattooing Face and Body Painting of the Thompson Indians, and, you know, I told you that I'm in Tlacatmuk, well, one of the names that was given to us is the Thompson Indians. So this was a little ethnographic booklet about our tattooing tradition, and, you know, at that time I thought, wow. You know, I always say my head just about popped off because I didn't realize we had a tattooing tradition. And that's always true with every time that I do one of our traditional pieces that uh, community members, you know, of course, it's like tattoos done, put it on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. Community members always go, we have a tattooing tradition. So, you know, it's important to continue to bring those lights on. I'm going to share a few more little stories with you. This is the Fort Food Chief story, and it's the story of the time before this time again, uh, you know, before humans were here on this plane. And the creator came to the animal people and he said, you know, what will you do for the people to be? And so, of course, the people to be were us human beings, because as animals, we're not actually 
that well adapted to our environments. We need a lot of help to survive here. And so the creator asked, what are you going to do for the people to be? So they sat in a circle and they had that conversation. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that story because it's all that's relevant for this conversation. But I'm told that to hear that whole story, it's two days to hear the whole thing. So in 2009, I started my tattoo apprenticeship, and this is a picture of me tattooing my mom. She's pretty dope, so I had to put it in there. <laughs> you know, um, in 2010, uh, you know, for a couple of years, I was, had the honor of being a uh, kickboxing instructor. And one of, uh, you know, on one of my trips, one of the young men that I work with, um, he, you know, we had a conversation and I asked him, you know, you know, where are you from? And he denied that he had any indigeneity to him, even though I know his family and I knew who he was. And so I just left that. And then, you know, uh, it was actually at his funeral and I bring forward, you know, these conversations of the work that I do in terms of uh, the research that I do, the apprenticeship that I took on the realization that we had a tattooing tradition. And I also looked into what the revival of indigenous tattooing was doing for indigenous cultures and nations other than my own, and found that, um, I believe it was Al Frank who said that their youth are like, like seaweeds without roots, and that our tattooing tradition uh, is a way to root our children and our youth into, into our culture. And so for me, you know, uh, my young friend, I bring up my young friend because uh, a few months after that conversation, he decided that he didn't want to stay with us on this earth anymore. And it was at his funeral that I took all of those things and my answer to the creator's question was the revival of Inflikatmuk tattooing and the revival of indigenous tattooing so that we can root our youth in our culture. And so I always say that if they're here for one more day, one more week, one more hour, or one more minute, or one more second, the work that we're doing is important and valuable. So, uh, you know, when I began, when I tell you that, that story, it's because I had a hunch, and that hunch was informed by the work that I was doing in terms of this idea of tattoo medicine. So one of the things that we struggle with is our identity as indigenous people. You know, uh, there's been strategic processes that have been put in place to strip us of our identity in our land. And so the hunch that I had is that when we plant ourselves into our culture and we have roots, uh, it becomes medicine. These things root us and heal us in a certain way. And my friend, Corey Bulpit, who's a Haida cultural tattoo practitioner, said, we're using something old to fix a new problem. So I just want to show you the statistics. Health Canada, so I'm from Canada, obviously. So Health Canada reports suicide is uh, second to automobile accidents in deaths of youth. And then it's indigenous youth have five times more likely to die from suicide than non-indigenous youth. So using something old to fix a new problem. And my initial hunch, I had that hunch that this is something that helped to anchor our youth. And as I begin, uh, continued my research into uh, you know, this idea of cultural continuity or the, the use of culture as a 
Barry or, or, or a, and a, a way to protect our youth from suicide, from choosing that they'd rather not be here than to be here. I found this uh, amazing article, and it, cultural continuity as a hedge against suicide in Canada's First Nations. So the premise for this article is, is that, you know, when you see the statistic that youth suicide is so high for Indigenous people, what it does is it takes every community and clumps them all together. But the reality is there are communities that don't have youth suicide, that have zero or very low suicide rates. And so they started to look at those communities, what were the things that helped to protect the youth. And one of them was, uh, you know, well, they, did, they had five things, and the main one was they, those communities had a process of developing and bringing forward their culture as a barrier against suicide. So that's the hunch that I had in the beginning, and it's beautiful to find these things that help to support that. So one thing I, I always like to mention, a lot of times we do these presentations and people like to see all of the beautiful stuff about the revival and all of that work, but the reality is, is that we're doing the revival because it was erased at one point. And the main reason for the erasure of our tattoos and our identity and our spirituality and worldview was the theft of land. So I just have to bring that forward and put this conversation within that context, the cultural context of genocide. Um, so I started with a couple of my friends, the Earthline Tattoo Collective, and we do an Indigenous tattoo school, which we just finished, and this was our fourth one. And we've taught 20 Indigenous artists how to hand poke and skin stitch with health being the number one priority as they go out into their communities. So why do I tattoo? This is a, this is a picture of my nephew at one of our you know, pictograph sites. And we go out onto the land a lot to share uh, these markings, whether they're on the land, on our clothing, or on our bodies. And the reason I tattoo is so that my, the coming generations don't have to go through the same struggles that we went through. You know, they'll have their own struggles unique to their time, unique to their situation, but they won't have to think about reviving a tattooing tradition. They will have a tattooing tradition that's alive. And I always relate that to a story of my mentor who taught me how to machine tattoo. So her kids obviously grew up in the tattoo shop and they went to the beach one time and my boss says, her son was looking at this guy really weird because he took his shirt off and he went to go jump in the water. And she was like, what is he thinking? And so he looks at her and he goes, mom, where's his tattoos? <laughs> you know, as if that's the thing that's normal. And so that's where I want to be, and that's why I do this work, and that's my answer to the creator's question, so that it's just normal that we have these traditions. Thank you. My name is Terangitu Amuhau Nethana. I'm a Māori with a traditional kind of values. Māori uh, around the world uh, have a lot to offer to the world. Tamako means more than just a tattoo. It's not something that we wear lightly because we represent our ancestors. They're patterns that have been gifted to me and they're patterns with stories connected to them and lineage connected to them. Part of my work is getting to know the person that I've worked with and, and that's, that doesn't stop there. 
that I have a responsibility to the person as well and they have a responsibility to me. I won't use patterns that I don't have any connection to. I use patterns that I come from. I'm practicing the traditions of my people. It's not easy. It's one thing I think to receive it, to go through it. It's another thing to walk it. It's like turning your soul inside out so people can see you. And my truth is on my face. A tree is nothing without its roots, you know. And uh, and when you have no roots, you're easily pushed over. And and falling in love with a with a woman from England, you know, I think it's enriched my culture, my belief, uh, who I am. And, and it's definitely a challenge coming from two different cultures. But it gives my children um, well-roundedness to, to things, to, their, to who they are. Tāmoko is given to us for a reason. And, and I believe it should be done properly. Tāmoko, it's a promise to myself, to my past, my ancestors, uh, to my now and to the future of, um, of walking a new direction for our people. ちょろらわかりたいああ毎日ポケマナヤキタレフミヘネギテフェンウアタンヤナキガタンガタコロヒヒポコロヒヒアオコロゴトゥレキタマタハウオツトゥテウェニウェニトゥテワノワナトゥ
Ngati Wai used to be Ngati uh, Manaya. He was brother to Toi. Uh, he comes from the line of Maui. And, um, and his canoe was um, Mahuhu Kiterangi. And uh, also come from Matatua, from Kupe's uh, canoe. And my mother's side is Terawa, uh, which is down in Rotorua, uh, east coast Matata. And that's Terawa, the canoe. Um, my grandfather was Scottish. Um, and so we got a little dash of Portuguese and a little dash of uh, Irish as well. So every single one of them are troublemakers. <laughs> uh, and so I'm here as the people of the land, from my land, to, um, to give you a message. I've been asked to um, come here and talk uh, about uh, the origins of Moko, one of the stories, and they vary from tribe to tribe. Uh, and so I've been asked to come and share but unfortunately, I have to say this. Although I'm going to share these things with you, that does not mean that it belongs to you. Um, I believe no one has a right to use my ancestors' patterns unless we come from those ancestors. And so it's an unfortunate message that I have to say um, that no one has the right to wear my patterns unless it's been given from our people. And so we respect each other's uh, differences uh, and so I'm going to tell you a story about uh, Mataura and Niwaireka, which is, I guess, one of our forefront um, stories of, of orange, or origins of, of Tāmoko, of, of tattoo. Uh, and so it starts with uh, Niwaireka. Niwaireka was from a, from a land we call Rarohinga. Rarohinga was a realm that... Our people around were an island, yeah, that our people would uh, visit and go to. Uh, they were the people that resided there were Turehu. Turehu are our, what we call our fairy people. They were fair-skinned, uh, some blonde, red, hair, uh, light-skinned, not, not white, but light-skinned. And uh, we, we, our people, I come from... One of the hapus or sub-tribes I come from is called Tefano Fero, and we say that we have Turehu blood. Uh, <clears throat> and so Niwareka uh, came from Rarohinga. Rarohinga was a very peaceful place. It was a very, it's where we found, uh, where we received Pononga, the truth. And, uh, and there was uh, Mataura. Mataura came from uh, Te Tūroa. Tauturo is, is here and where we reside today. This is, uh, the, I guess, the living world. And uh, as it goes, that one day the Turehu came to Matora's lands and they welcomed them. And uh, they welcomed them and, uh, because like, like high-ranking people should be welcomed. Uh, within this, this ope, this group that came, was this beautiful uh, puhi or princess um, Niwereka. And Matora was uh, taken by her beauty, by her uh, korako here and um, her, um, I've got notes here, <laughs> bear with me. Uh, so yeah, 
he, uh, sorry, Korako skin and and um, uh, Uru Uru ke, uh, sorry, uh, who lights light here, <laughs> and uh, and anyway, so uh, he was taken with her, and she was taken with him, and they they uh, they obviously hit it off, and uh, so he fed them uh, with cooked food. But um, the Turuhu didn't eat cooked food, they eat raw food. And so uh, for that slight, he kind of, he had his men uh, go to his personal uh, pond and take the fish from there and, and, and they fed on the raw fish. And, uh, and so there came the time that the Turuhu were going back to Rarohinga. And so he asked uh, Niwereka, to, to reside with him in Te Aotearoa. And so uh, they, that, that, that was so, so the Turehu went returned home without Niwereka. And uh, of course, Niwereka's uh, manner the coming from uh, Rarohinga was very peaceful and very loving. And the, and the people, so uh, uh, they, they fell in love with her too. And it kind of started creating jealousy in, in, in Matoro's heart. He blamed her for um, making uh, eyes, I guess, at one of his brothers. And they argued, and he uh, struck her. And so he was a young chief. And I think, I guess, with, with the things of a young chief, uh, arrogance comes with it, you know. And he was no exception. He was a young, arrogant chief. Uh, and so she waited till night and she returned uh, to Rarohinga. And so uh, when he woke, he decided that he would uh, chase her and try to kind of try to convince her to return home. And so he went across many islands uh, and, and he got to, uh, he went across many islands. Each island he had different. Uh, uh, different things happened to him as he, as in his in his learning, or sometimes in his training of being a, a chief. And of course, then he got to. Um, I knew I was going to forget this. Uh, hang on, what to call? Ah, Pautu Tere Rangi. Pautu Tere Rangi was the last island um, before you go to Rarohinga. And as he got to Pautu Tererangi, was uh, he met Teku uh, Watawata. Teku Watawata was like, I guess, he was like the customs, and uh, and so he, he 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 made sure what was going through and what was coming out was was uh, was the truth, and so he he uh, he challenged. Uh, Matora. Matora asked him if he had seen a woman come this way, and he said yes. And who who might you be? And Matora said, "Well, I'm I'm her her tani. Uh, and and so um, and so you might be Matora then. And so she he said yes. And the uh, Kugatawata said, "Oh look, um, she has told me of what you have done, and she looked beaten." And uh, what are your intentions? And Matoda said, well, my intentions is to return her home. And he said, well, 
in Rarohinga, uh, we do not hit and, or strike our women. So he didn't think that uh, Matora was uh, going to be very successful. And so, so in his curiosity, I guess, he allowed him through. And so uh, Matora uh, went into, um, uh, into the spirit realm. And as he was going through, he came through to the other side, and he was walking, and he came across uh, her village. Uh, and he tried to talk and ask people uh, where his wife or this, this woman he, he, he loved uh, was, and they wouldn't speak to him. They, wouldn't, they couldn't see him. Uh, they could, didn't trust his words because they couldn't see he, he didn't have markings. Uh, and, so, um, and so he remembered uh, what Tuatawata looked like, and he, he, he made a fire, and he used the, the soot, and he painted his face. And so he was about to walk on to uh, the marae because he was allowed a viewing. And as he was walking on, it rained, and it washed the paint from his face. Uh, and he and the people laughed, embarrassing his his wife and the people and and, and himself. And so he uh, he went to uh, find, uh, you know, he he had a bit of turmoil, I guess. And he came across men in a, in a, mostly men. There was a woman there too, but there were mostly men in a in a in a circle, and they were in a ceremony. One man was laying on his back with his face uh, facing up, and then another man had a uh, chisel and or uhi, and and he was striking the uhi and placing uh, the the patterns into this man's face. There was bleeding, and uh, Matauda couldn't uh, really understand why this was happening, and he was while he was watching, he kind of in his arrogance. He, uh, he, to make him his presence known, he said, why would you do this? Why would you, you cut the face and why would you? Uh, and um, he still kind of had some uh, patterns on his face. And little did he know the man that was placing these patterns uh, was called Uitonga. Um, Uitonga was the great chief of Rarohinga, Uitonga was also his wife's uh, father. And uh, Uitonga turned to him, and he had the muka in his hand, and he wiped the patterns off his face. And he said, the reason why we don't uh, do what you do is because you're like the, the grains of sand on the shore. It comes and it goes. Uh, ours is like the rock. It stays forever. And so uh, we cannot put down our responsibilities. Our responsibilities are in front of you. We cannot uh, uh, deny our truth. And so, uh, so uh, he decided that he wanted to place these patterns on his face. And he asked Uitonga if he would do this. And Uitonga did as Uitonga started to break the skin, uh, uh, Matora went into uh, chant 
went into prayer, and uh, like we do today. Um, and and uh, he got to a really strong pace in the pain that he started to uh, lament uh, for his wife. And while um, while he was he was laying there, the, there was a woman, actually the sister of Matauda, was sitting there, and her name was Ue Ue Kura. And Ue Kura um, overheard this lamenting, and so uh, he she uh, went to her sister and said, believed that you know this Tane was was her sister's man, and and that he was he was lamenting for him, and who why he what was he there, and and Niwareka shared the story of what had happened, and in her sister's wisdom, she said when he heals. You will heal him in my house, and uh, and so that's what was that's what happened. They they in the time of healing, um, Niwareka uh, healed. When she when the sister went to go see Niwareka, uh, Niwareka was in a in a wananga herself. A wananga is a time of learning, and she was learning uh, uh, the practice of of thaniko. Taniko is a very patient kind of work. Taniko is a fine weave. Taniko is also how we relay our whakapapa in weaving, or our lineage in weaving. And so she was learning that, and she was also learning uh, how to take care of things, uh, how to nurse. And so in her sister, sister's wisdom, she said, you know, take him to my house and, and heal him. And in that time of healing, they kind of came to the conclusion that they loved each other. And so, uh, once again, in in, Uitonga, uh, in, uh, in Mataora's kind of young mind, he, right, that's enough, you know, uh, we can go. And uh, the family actually stood and opposed him and, and, and said, no, you know, if you, if you love our daughter, you will stay here. And Uitonga said, actually, the... It's not a good time to travel. There's a lot of storm and there's a lot of turmoil in the world. It's not a good time to go, so you should stay. And anyway, Matora, you know, had enough and he tried to leave and uh, a tireiraka, or a, a fantail, what we call a fantail, it's a little brown bird, and he's a messenger bird. He started uh, flying in front of him and, uh, and he questioned this fantail and said, you know, what, what, what's going on here? The fantail says to him to wait to live for one year and to return in the month of November. And so, uh, and in that year, learn the practice of Tāmoko and your wife will learn the practice of Tāniko. And so that's why, uh, and so that was done. He, he stayed. And in the time in that year, as they were learning these practices, he learned how to be humble through the art of tamako, um, through the practice, I should say, of tamako. Um, and and in that time, he learned how to be within himself and how to and to understand that the, in the, the the ceremony, it's about sharing the mana, not with just you. You're not just the you're not the important person. Not like a machine. 
So a machine, I feel, is egotistical kind of thing. The mana sits in one person's hands and everybody massages that ego. And so uh, it, it, with, the, with the ceremony, your stretcher is important. The person that you're working on is important. The environment is important. Everything is important. And you're minus, kind of really, you're there for other people. The stretcher is there for the person. We're there for each other. And so he learned these things, and she learned uh, Taniko. And in that time, they, they gained the trust of her family. And uh, Uitonga allowed them to leave. And he uh, also gifted them uh, different gifts. And, um, and so he gave them the ruru and the pika pika. The ruru is, the, is, is, is our owl. And uh, the pika pika is our bat. And uh, he said to cast them on the edge of day and night where man could not touch them or hunt them. And they would be the go between our spirit world and our practical world. I guess in his kind of clever kind of thinking, he was putting in just in case kind of clause. Uh, if anything happens, he's going to find out. And so he also gave them a tatua, which is a type of a belt. And that tatua carries different things inside it. And, uh, and he gave them a korowai. The korowai was called... Uh, and so as they were returning they came across to Watawata again and uh, as like I said he was like customs and so they had to kind of declare what they were coming through with and because the things that he gave them weren't just shallow things they were important things and he needed to know whether they had uh, the strength to hold these things um, and of course um, Matoda said that yeah I have been taught the practice of of Taniko uh, of uh, Tamako and uh, Niwareka actually she she hesitated and she said I got a few things and she wasn't very clear but Tuatawata was that kind of being that knew everything, and so uh, I got an auntie like that. Oh. Uh, and, and, and so you couldn't, you couldn't lie to the, him, you know, so, but she had kind of diverted the truth. And, uh, and because of that, uh, they, they, they tried to kind of, and they gave him, oh, so because of that, he closed the door to, to uh, the spirit realm. And so they gave the, the ruru and the pika pika to him, and he cast them on the edge of day and night. And they, they went through, and they returned in the month of November, uh, in the summer of November. Now, you know where we're talking about if it's summer in November. But um, so, so that was, you know, a lot of our narratives and the things that we kind of, in my kind of walk with Tamoko, um, you know, we look at these stories and, 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 and I look at that story. That one story for me is one of the, because it holds a lot of traditions inside that story, I know it's the truth, you know, kind of thing, because we still practice those things today. Uh, 
right at that cloak that they talk of. Uh, the only time we use that cloak now is when we, when we die, when we pass. We lay the cloak on the, on the, on, on the tupapaku, on the body, and it helps them to go through to the spirit realm. That's the only time we use that, that, that kind of cloak. The cloak changes its name. Uh, every family where I'm from, most families have a koroai. Depending on the way, the direction the koroai is pointing, it means different things. We also have uh, mats that if you are not of the rank of the person that is laying, you cannot walk on the mats, so you've got to pull the mats up and you've got to walk underneath the mats. Uh, but if you're of the same rank, you lay those mats and you walk across those mats. So our, our, our whariki or our mats, our weavings, we, care, we have personal whariki and we'll take them wherever we go. We also take our land with us, so we always sleep on our land, kind of thing. So our kōrowai, our weavings, they represent those things for us. There's all these protocols that are sitting within this one story. It teaches us that a man and a woman can look after each other in the time of healing. And the time of healing is a very sacred time. It's a very important time because it's a time where you're vulnerable. It's a time where you're vulnerable to anything negative. And so when we create the, the kind of universe or the, the kind of um, ceremony that we're in, we make sure that it's a clean place. It's, it's, it's spiritually, and there's no kind of talk of negative things. So when we sing or when we kind of relay uh, lineage or whakapapa, when the uhi is tapping into the, into the skin and laying those patterns, uh, it's being empowered by the words. So the words are going inside the person. And so it empowers us kind of thing, you know. And so anyway, I think I uh, kind of said enough as we can kind of, I'll go real quickly. This is my, some of my family. This is outside one of our marais. I just wanted to show you these guys. Um, this is what I do. This is my work. Mainly, you know, our kind of patterns in the north are real simple, not very ornate. Um, and I kind of like that because it makes it easy to do. <laughs> um, this is one of my, uh, my, my cousins. Um, she's asleep. She's actually snoring. But um, she turned up one day and, and decided she wanted her kaiwai, and she didn't... Um, and her husband didn't know. <laughs> he found out on the day. Um, the next one. And so this is what the ceremony would have looked like uh, back in the day where you have uh, our komatsua in the, in the corner, our tohunga, and he would be singing and chanting and, and lamenting uh, the stories or the whakapapa, the lineage of this, this man. And, 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 and the tohunga is, is praying as well. Um, obviously, this is a painting that was set up, kind of thing. It was probably painted in a studio. But um, some of the things that we learn to look at is the little things. This is what was painted at a time of our people was actually coming down. You know, the white dudes had turned up. And uh, normally, you wouldn't find so much rubbish. Without the, the artist knowing, he kind of captured uh, what was happening to our people. 
and we wouldn't allow our whare or our house or our, our whariki to be broken. Um, so in a way, it's a kind of, it's captured a memory and it reminds us that we need to re-fix our things, clean our backyard and, and make sure our people are, are sweet before we kind of fix the world. Um, but, yeah, cool. <laughs> Kia ora, 